You are listening to the Mill Sunday School Podcast. Turn in your Bibles to the very end. We are studying, uh, we're in this series on eschatology, the study of the end times. And so we're going to read a passage of Scripture, Revelation 8, um, 6 through 10. So turn there. Turn there in your own Bibles. We're under the habit of not putting up the Scripture on the screen to kind of encourage you to turn in your own books or whether it be an electronic format of a Bible. Get you used to turning to passages of Scripture and reading them. And this one seems like it's very appropriate for today and the news of this week. Someone uh, made note of the cover of our skillet thinking that was the Black Forest burning. Um, But that's like the whole earth burning uh, which will, in some way, in some uh, metaphorical way, happen sometime. There will be an end to this earth as we know it, and maybe it'll look like that, like a fireball. Not really sure exactly, but listen to this passage of Scripture. It's about the angels and the trumpets and, and this metaphorical end of the world. It says this in Revelation 8, 6, And the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound. So imagine seven angels, all with trumpets about to sound, and then things happen as they are sounded. The first sounded, and there came hail and fire mixed with blood, and then they were they was thrown to the earth. And a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. The second angel sounded, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea. It was just huge, like hyperbole, hyperbolic, is that a word? Um, metaphors of the earth being destroyed at these angels blowing these trumpets. And a third of the sea became blood. And a third of the creatures which were in the sea had life, they died. And a third of the ships were destroyed. And then the third angel sounded, and a great star fell from heaven, burning like a, a torch, maybe like a meteor or something. And it fell. And a third of the rivers, and on the, it fell on the rivers and on the springs of waters. And so there's these destructions, and here we are, only three out of the seven trumpets, and these destructions of the earth that are that are coming, or that have come, um, how it depends on your interpretation of the book of Revelation, we'll talk about that today. But an appropriate verse, I think, to read as, as we think about the news this week and consider, you know, I heard people sometimes jokingly saying, like, is this the apocalypse? Um, is this the end of the world? Um, you know, the whole north end of Colorado Springs is on fire. What is, you know, could this be the end? And so um, let's consider that and let's consider the end times and these events that are happening. So let's pray this morning as we um, consider that. So Father, we are um, just grateful that we are here. We're here today and alive and we're safe. And God, we pray, we reach out to those that have been affected by the fire, the Black Forest fire, people that have lost their homes. There's been loss of life. And Lord, we are we just put you as in charge. You are God. You are in control of that situation. You are sovereign. We say, just we pray and we ask to, for the fire to end soon, for destruction to stop. And we, we just pray that those that are suffering will be with you. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. So here's a picture. Uh, many of you saw something like this is from the New Life parking lot on Tuesday of just smoke going up and people asking the question, like, is this the end? How many of you thought that? Or how many of you heard a question like that? Like, is this the apocalypse? Is this the end of the world? I mean, it's just ominous cloud in the north end of Colorado Springs. How many of you got evacuated 
Anybody? Oh, lots of people. Lots of, lots of you live up, up here. Uh, well, th- this idea of, you know, the earth burning in the end and, and Revelation predicting some of these events. And then it goes into this meteor falling, falling on the rivers and on the waters. And here's a picture of my house. We live in uh, Manitou. Here's Adam Molesky helping me sandbag for my house. So there's, if you go to my house right now, there's like sandbags, like walls of it all the way around my house because at least halfway around the house, because there's this, from the Waldo Canyon fire, which was less than a year ago, it burned the scar, and the scar area could, a lot of water could hit the scar area, come down my road, and destroy my house. And so there's sandbags, and so there's just ominous events that are happening to our city and in Colorado. And I think around the world at different points, there's different news always going on. And people may be asking the question, are these the events of the end? Are these the events predicted by the angels and the trumpets? Are these the, the seals that are being released and like hailstorms and fire and meteors and wars and rumors of wars? Is this the end times? So I think a very appropriate topic for us to be thinking about and considering here at the Mill Sunday School. So if you're new to the Mill Sunday School, welcome. Thanks for coming and checking it out. Uh, we have visitor cards on all the tables. They look something like this. You can fill that out, bring it to the people as you leave. They'll be nice to you. There's little gift bags with Brady's. Uh, Brady's our senior pastor of New Life Church. Wrote a book called Sons and Daughters. That's in the gift bag as you leave if you give us your card. And if you want an email or a phone call, we'll call you, we'll email you. So, um, yeah. And good news. In two weeks, we're going to do a hot breakfast. Um, So it'll be the conclusion, the final, final, final conclusion of our 10-month series of systematic theology, which started way back in September and 10 months ago. And so the close of this month in two weeks, not next week, but the week after, make sure you're here because we're going to do a hot breakfast and pancakes and eggs and other things. We're still deciding on what we're going to make. And the team will get here at like 6 or 5.30 in the morning and make breakfast for all of you and slave themselves in the kitchen, um, all in celebration of our conclusion of systematic theology, which we start, already said started in September. It's going through. And here we are in this month of June, concluding with eschatology, the study of the end, the end times. And I wanted to restate this uh, that we stated last week. The eschaton, this Greek word, in some ways means the end and the end times, but it also means, it has more of a, uh, a notion of like the goal. Like the events of the end aren't just going to happen randomly, but the events of the end, as we read in Revelation, as Jesus predicts his, his coming back, it's more of this goal of the end. That God does know what's going to happen. God is in control of all these things. And so we're going to do uh, a little bit of a review. This is the third week of five weeks, uh, a series on the end time specifically. So a quick review of what we talked about last time, and then oh, we'll, we'll get to where we're going today. But last time and the time before, this whole series, we've been talking about open-handed and closed-handed issues. Anybody remember that? Anybody? Yeah, lots of hands. Sweet. So the idea of a closed hand is this idea that we as Christians hold certain ideas to be of the utmost importance, foundational to our faith, creedal ideas. And the open-handed issues are issues that we could all in here. Let's just assume we're all Christians in here. Uh, We're all believers. We in this room, the the open-handed issues of scripture, we could disagree on. We could disagree on uh, pre-millennial, uh, post-millennial. We could disagree on lots of things within the interpretations of Scripture. We could disagree on um, whether there's free will or whether we're predestined. We could disagree on 
Lots of things, according to the end times. And especially, uh, I put like most end times theology is going to fall into this open hand. Um, different opinions. And we all probably have different opinions on what the events of the end might look like. And I think at the end of the day, most of us would say, it's a guess. It's a really good guess. It's a really good interpretation of a guess. But in the end, uh, we're all still Christians if we have different interpretations of the end. Cool beans? All right. So, a pop quiz. Are you ready? Some of your hearts are just like, oh my gosh, I remember in school we had those. And it's, it's closed book, closed interwebs, but you're allowed to talk with your little buddy. So really, it's more of a discussion question. Um, so at your tables, discuss this question. It's something, if, so if, how many of you were here last week? Raise your hands high. So you should know this because we kind of talked, we, we did this last week. We listed five for sures. So I, I wanted to review this and kind of figuratively beat the figurative dead horse again, um, figuratively, you know, uh, and, and say, here's the for sure things. We're going to talk about lots of open-handed issues, but here's some closed-handed issues, and we mentioned them last week. We said there's five of them. So as a group, as a table, no notes, no interwebs, no calling a friend, just the people at your table, try to write down the five for sures. So, so what are the for sures? when talking about the end times. And if you were here last week, you hopefully you get a couple of, out of the five. Ready? Get set. Discuss. All right, raise your hand at your table if you got three or more of the for sures. Yes, look at all those hands. That's three out of five. That's better than half. That's like passing. Is that passing? Is that like a D average? Yeah, it's not passing really. Not fail. How many of you got four out of five? That's like a B or C. How many of you got five out of five? Or at least you think you got... <laughs> You think you did? Uh, here's the ones we listed last time. We listed five for sures, and here they are. Ready? Boom. Jesus will come back. The dead in Christ will, will rise. There will be judgment. This table up here said, well, what about the idea of like every knee will bow, every tongue confess? That's a for sure, right? And it's like, well, yeah, that's probably a part of number three, a judgment, and that, that the Christ, Christ will come back. The dead will rise. There will be judgment. End of the world as we know it. And we joked about the REM song from years ago. And then number five is we won't know when this will happen, like a thief in the night. And thieves in the night come when they're unexpected. You know, thieves in the night don't come when they're expected because they don't want to get shotgunned. So those are the five. Um, so here we are. I thought I'd literally put up a picture of a, someone. <laughs> but I think this, there's something to be said about the important <laughs> It's not, it's not that graphic. Everyone's just... Anyways, so we're, we're figuratively beating the dead horse of this end-time review because I can't stress it enough. The rest of this month, we are going to be talking about open-handed issue on top of open-handed issue and building on open-handed issues. And the foundations still stand on open-handed issues. Um, and like, what's your interpretation of the end? What's your interpretation of... Uh, the Antichrist, the beast, the mark of the beast, all these different things, pre-millennial, post-millennial, pre-trib, post-trib, when's the rapture, when is there a millennium, is there not a millennium, all these different questions, it's all going to rest on open-handed issues. So I wanted to beat the dead horse of re- referring to the for sures and remind us of those things. Because as soon as you start um, researching the end times, you will run into charts like this. Anybody familiar with this kind of chart where someone has... Uh, laid out the events. So this particular chart is like, here we are um, p- after the rebirth of Israel. There'll be a rapture of the church, according to this chart. 
Then there'll be a tribulation, which is three and a half years, and then three and a half years because of time, time, and half a time, and then time, time, and half a time. So that's like seven years, maybe. And then Christ will return, and then there'll be a thousand years, and then there'll be a great white throne, and then the new heavens. And he, raise your hand if you're familiar with this kind of chart. So lots of you. And then there, there, you, you're like, oh, that's what's going to happen. I got this chart. And you probably put it up in your bedroom, and you're waiting for the, you know, the, the events to happen, and you're looking at it every day. And then, someone, and then you research some more end-time stuff, and you find a different chart. And this one is, uh, here we are living in the age of the church, after the Old Testament, after before the cross. And then this one says there'll be time of tribulation, and then there'll be a rapture. So this one is a post-trib rapture, if you're familiar with those terms. And if you're not, then next time we're going to talk about this in, in great length. So if you're like, what's the trib? What's the pre-trib, post-trib? What's the mid-trib? What's the pan-trib? Pan-trib, by the way, is that it all just pans out. So I, I like that one. Um, anyways, um, so this chart's a little different. Tribulation, then the rapture, then a thousand years, and then it's just, it doesn't really say when Jesus is coming back. It leaves that part out. But then, and then there's charts like this that are totally different. This one just says that we're living in this present age and we're now living in this millennium now. Uh, and the consummation is not yet. And then at some point, Christ is just going to return. There's going to be a final judgment. It looks like this is one thing. And it kind of leaves out the rapture. It leaves out the tribulation. And then we enter into an eternal state. So what in the world? I mean, as soon as you start researching this as a Christian, um, you will find all sorts of charts like this. Just Google image uh, that's what I, I got these three charts off of Google image. Uh, I just typed in like end times charts and you'll find lots of them and lots of them will have differences and when, where they put the tribulation, where they put the millennium, or if, if they just leave those things out and it's just one continuous line with the end. Um, and so here's another discussion question for you, because I know you like your little buddies at your table and you love chatting with them. So um, this one, I'll ask the question, let you talk, and then I have a microphone. I'm going to go out and I would love to hear a few of your thoughts on this. But what are the different views of Revelation? Can you maybe like, oh, I, I know this view and this view and this view. Can you list, some of you maybe list the view you have. If you have a view of the end, you're like, oh, my view is this. And then maybe hear somebody else out and be like, oh, well, that would be a different view. Um, do you know the names of some of these different things? Some of you are probably like right with me and you're like, oh, yeah, I know all these different views. And some of you are like, what in the world? This is all new. So that's OK. So talk at your tables and maybe list out different views of Revelation. Ready, get set, discuss. All right. I got a microphone. Who would love to be the first to start us off? Yes. We already got hands raised. So views of the end, what do you think? Um, the number seven is mentioned a lot. Yeah. Because uh, you have the seven bowls. Seven seals, seven trumpets. Seven angels, seven, seven angels. trumpets. Uh, the beast with seven heads. Yep. So just the number seven. Think about that. It'll blow your mind, huh? Higginses? So... I would say the book of Revelation, at least my point of view on it, is that it's a mix. It's, it's both alliteration, it's also literal. It's, it's alliteration also, literal. Yeah, it's also figurative. It's, it's describing things that are simply indescribable. Uh, so I think it was, it was having to translate something uh, very spiritual, something very heavenly into uh, terms easily understood by the first century. So it goes Christian. back and forth between figurative and literal events. Yeah, well, it's... it's it's about the end, and the end is going to happen, so it's literal in that sense. But I think how it plays out might be more uh, figurative than it is yeah. literal. 
Good. So we got figurative, literal. We got the number seven and that being a theme. What else? You got something? Laszlo? Good. Good. John, you want it? You good? All right, good. Okay. La- all right, Laszlo, here we go. So um, one of the, uh, the interpretations of Revelations was actually that it wasn't necessarily referring to things that happen in the future. Uh, one of the beliefs about Revelations is that when you look at some of the symbolism, some of the people that it's talking about, et cetera, yeah. it speaks directly to times, places, and events that were happening during the life of so Jesus Christ. So the first Christ. century. Exactly. Um, so one of the interpretations of, of Revelations is actually that it was a call to arms, that it was a battle plan, that it was in reference to a conflict that was coming yeah. you know, against the ruling state of Rome. So most of the events would have already happened then. Um, from Under that this, point of, an, another point of view. Yeah, from that point of view, yeah. and Or at the very least were planned to have happened. Um, In the first century. Yeah, the, the, century. the scholars that really kind of followed that train of thought basically argued that it was a, a battle plan of a battle that never took place. Interesting. Yeah. That's good. That's a very different interpretation than like the end, literal and figurative, the, the sevens. What else? Anybody? Maybe one more, two more. Oh, yeah. Go ahead. Well, uh, I don't know what it's called, but I know there's the, uh, the zombie apocalypse. Zombie uh, apocalypse! Point of view for the end times, so <laughs> yeah. it's popular among some people, but yeah. <laughs> love it. It's biblically sound. I love the zombie thing. Uh, I'd have to say uh, Israel. There's a reason why they're on the news a whole lot, and that um, a lot of the prophecy is directed so towards about, Israel. So about Israel, literal 12 tribes of Israel. The new Israel. Yeah. The new Israel. So the book of Revelation... It's like about Israel and the new Israel. In, in some cases, yeah. Awesome. Thank you, Jordan Burton. Anybody else? No, zombie apocalypse? Nothing else? Okay. Well, I have, um, I've kind of, and this may be way oversimplifying things, um, but I've, I've, in the notes here, I said different views of Revelation. I have kind of like a, a dotted line down the middle. And this is to separate two different views of the end. And with thanks of Laszlo and Higgins and uh, those of you that shared, I think all of those interpretations would fit into one of these two types of the book of Revelation. And you'll have to kind of bear with me for a little while um, because some of you are like, wait, there's not just two types of interpreting the two ways or two types of interpreting the book of Revelation, but there's lots of them. And I would say, yeah, of course there's lots of different ways. But I think a lot of those different ways would fall under one of these two big overarching types of how you approach the book of Revelation. So if you open up the book of Revelation and you, you either interpret this way or that way, it's either one of these two main types. And so this month has two more weeks. We're going to spend one week next week talking about one. And then the week after, when we do the hot breakfast, we'll spend the other time speaking about the other one. So you're probably wondering, what are they? Right? Everybody say, what are they? Come on. <laughs> All right. Thanks for humoring. <laughs> so the first one is contemporary historical. The second one is end historical. And you're like, that's it? That's all you got? Yeah, that's it. That's all I got. So let's explain these two. So if you're taking notes, put on one side contemporary historical, put on the other side end historical. And we're going to talk about these two. And so next time we're going to talk about the end historical. The time after that, we'll talk about the contemporary historical. So you're probably wondering, what in the world are these two types of interpreting the book of Revelation? Well, I'll tell you. Contemporary refers to the contemporaries of 
So if you're a contemporary, that means you're living at the same time, you're same place, you're contemporary to something else. So contemporary refers to those people and times and places contemporary to when the book of Revelation was written, so first century. End historical refers to that the book of Revelation is about the end. So here's the way I put it uh, down in words. So contemporary historical events related to the first century. This is the one that Laszlo said. He's like, well, people interpret it as uh, the events of the first century should be interpreted through their eyes. It should be interpreted through the audience, author, genre of the first century. And then a very different approach. Probably, I imagine, the end historical is probably the more popular interpretation in here, if I had to guess. Maybe we'll do a vote a little later after we talk about it. So the end historical is Revelation is a handbook for those in the end. So if you pick up the book of Revelation and you open it and you say, this is a handbook for the people living in the end times. This is the people trying to survive the zombie apocalypse or uh, the, what else did they say? The, the, the idea of the sevens and the seven seals that are coming, seven angels that are coming, the seven trumpets that are going to sound. This is the, the book of Revelation is for those living in the end or is it for those contemporary with the first century? Hugely different interpretations of the book of Revelation. Hugely different mindsets of going to the book and opening it up and having this bias or this interpretation, this lens by which you see the world. So imagine if, you're, if you have these cool sunglasses and they're yellow and you start reading the book of Revelation, you're like, oh, everything looks yellow. Or if you have sunglasses that are kind of tinted green and you're like, oh, everything in here is kind of green. Well, yeah, because that's your whole lens, the way in which you're reading the book of Revelation. And by the way, just to remind us that these two interpretations of the book of Revelation are foundationally resting upon an open-handed issue. So if you're in here and you're like, well, I interpret it more through the eyes of the first century. And some of you are in here like, no, 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 no. That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. You should interpret it through the lens of this being a handbook for the end times. Well, let's not kick each other out. Let's not throw around the word heretic or heresy. Let's just say this is all resting on an open-handed issue. Cool beans? Cool beans. All right. So let's talk more about these two and compare them. So let's get rid of the hand. And there's two, I don't know, maybe in the popular Christian thought, there's kind of two sides here. Uh, the NT right side and the left behind series side. So um, the end historical model would be just like the left behind series. How many of you read the books or saw the movie way back in the day when it was cool? <laughs> You're like, it's still cool. No, it's not. Um, not still cool. Um, I guess there's parts of it that are kind of cool. But if you're, uh, if you watch the movies, read the books, that by definition is a very end historical model for interpreting the book of Revelation. So there's like the Antichrist that's coming. There's the tribulation that's coming. There's maybe a rapture that's coming. The, the, the end, the millennium, the judgments, they're all to come. And there's, um, it rests upon this idea that the book of Revelation is written for those in the end. The other side of it is like maybe the scholar N.T. Wright. How many of you have ever heard of his name? How many of you have ever read a book by him or seen him do an interview? <laughs> like everybody's heard of him, but one guy, <laughs> Aaron Higgins, is the only one that's read a book by him. Anyways, um, you should. He's a great scholar. 
if you know Glenn Packiam at all, he, him and Glenn Packiam are like best buddies, at least if you ask Glenn Packiam. Um, <laughs> but N.T. Wright is the scholar that studies, he's a very contemporary historical model of the book of Revelation. He wrote this book called Surprised by, um, what's it called? Surprised by Hope. And if you read that, it's kind of his treatise on the end times. And it's a, it's a great book. It's one of the first books I read of N.T. Wright's, and I was just blown away. I remember people saying like, oh, N.T. Wright's like the new C.S. Lewis. And I was like, baloney, you can't be a new C.S. Lewis. No one's like C.S. Lewis. You're just C.S. Lewis and C.S. Lewis. But then after I read Surprised by Hope, I was like, wow, gosh, yeah, this guy is changing and transforming the Christian worldview and how we interpret various things, maybe somewhat like uh, C.S. Lewis. They're both English. They're both from England. They're both book writers. They're both Christians. And so maybe N.T. Wright is like, and they both have names that are like, like letters instead of names. C.S., N.T. Anyways, but, but N.T. Wright, I, I pulled a quote off one of his uh, writings. So on the back of your notes is a sweet quote by N.T. Wright. And it's kind of a slam on the Left Behind series. He says this, the mixed metaphors of trumpets blowing and the living being and the living being snatched, oh, the living being snatched into heaven. So like this idea of the trumpets and a literal rapture into heaven to meet the Lord are not to be understood as literal truth, as the Left Behind series suggests. Everyone say, dang. So those are fighting words between N.T. Wright and the authors of, of the Left Behind series. What is it? Jerry Jenkins and uh, Tim LaHaye, right? Um, those are fighting words. So they're very different interpretations, very different lenses of how you open the book of Revelation. Is it to those living in the end or is it to those um, living in the first century? And your lens, your bias on how you pick up and even open up the book of Revelation is hugely, you know, your interpretations are based upon those, that lens and how you see the world through that lens. Very different. Um, Here's some more words for you. Some, uh, the, the futurism versus preterism or preterism. I, I think it's usually pronounced preterism. Um, these views would, like futurism is like, oh, these events are happening in the future. The, the prefix pre means, oh, happened before. So preterism or preterism is referring to, oh, these events, uh, in the, these events, and I put quotations up there on the, the, the first bullet point, the events in Revelation already happened. They would be relative to the first century. They would be, um, how do we interpret this? Well, you have to interpret it through the eyes of someone living in the first century, according to the contemporary historical. The end historical is futurism. You have to interpret these events through the eyes of someone living in the end times, whether that is our lifetime or many generations from now. The book of Revelation is written to those in the end or was it written to the people living in the first century? Hugely different ideas of how you interpret, how you would interpret the book of Revelation. Furthermore, this last point here is um, the big idea of Revelation already happened versus this big word called dispensationalism. Everybody say dispensationalism. That's kind of a fun word to say. It's a big word and, and people love big words. Guys, girls love big words. Just use big words and Trust me, you know, just, anyways, um, it's very impressive is what I mean by that. Uh, so this idea of, disp- there's different dispensations, 
And so this idea of like, oh, there will be a rapture, that's one dispensation. And maybe uh, a tribulation, that's another dispensation. And then the millennium, that's another dispensation, a thousand-year reign of Christ, literally, on this earth. Um, So that's dispensationalism is a word that would definitely be under end historical. And then the the idea that Revelation already happened, and many of the events already happened. And I think there's still to come, you know, because we go back to the five for sures, and both of these sides would still agree in the five for sures. So the contemporary historical would say, well, Christ is still yet to come, and the end of the world is still yet to come. But the interpretation of the book of Revelation is, isn't necessarily about those things happening in the end. And we'll talk about that in two Sundays from now. And you're like, well, how can that be? And doesn't the book of Revelation say about itself that these are the events that are to take place? How do you interpret that if it's not end historical? Well, there's different ways of interpreting. And there's strengths and weaknesses to both of these. I think under the end historical, a strength would be that uh, it makes the Bible, Bible relevant for today. So end historical, be like, the Bible's relevant today. The, the Antichrist may be living today. The beast, the, the guy, the angels and the seven seals, you know, maybe these events are unfolding today, literally as we speak. Um, and so it makes, I think, a strength of the end historical model is it makes the Bible very relevant for today. Um, a weakness is that it's always kind of changing. So the end historical model is like, uh, you know, a few years ago, maybe um, Clinton was the Antichrist. And everybody was like, oh, he's the Antichrist. And then it was Bush. It's like, oh, the Bush is the Antichrist. And then, and then now, of course, it's Obama's the Antichrist, really, this time. And then, and then in another couple of years, another president will be elected. And it's like, no, he's the Antichrist for sure this time. And it's like, well, it's that, I think a weakness is that we're always reinterpreting things through the eyes of like, oh, if this is the end times, then, then we need to interpret it this way, and it keeps changing as different events happen. I think that's kind of a weakness, um, a strength to the contemporary historical. So a strength to the side on here on the left would be that it's, in some ways, most people would say its strength is that it's good hermeneutics. I mean, you take any other passage of the Bible, and you say, how do you interpret this passage of Scripture? You would say, well, who was it written to, and who wrote it? What was the genre? What was the type of literature that it was? And you interpret from that. You, you don't usually necessary, necessarily, when you're interpreting other passages of Scripture, just say, well, what could this mean for me today? Um, you, you would do good hermeneutics and, and interpret it through the eyes of the people who lived at the time it was being written. So that would be a strength to the left side there. Um, um, let's see, a weakness would be, I think, sometimes people from the right side would say, oh, you're not, you know, you're not putting a true emphasis or a literal interpretation on Scripture as you should. Um, You should interpret it literally. And the end historical usually says, we're interpreting it literally. And the left side says, well, maybe it's more symbolic or maybe it's more figurative. And so that, I think that's maybe a weakness for the contemporary historical is that People on the right would say, you guys aren't being literal enough when it comes to Scripture. And they believe the Bible's literal. Uh, So that would be another interpretation of, or excuse me, another weakness maybe of the contemporary historical model. Is anyone else's head spinning? And you're like, wow, this is a lot of info. This is a lot of stuff. Well, we'll break this down next next time. We'll talk about the end historical model and, and really bring that forward and talk about 
Left Behind series and Rapture and Antichrist and Beast and the Sevens and all this fun stuff. Um, and in the time after that, we'll talk about the end historical. But let's clear the things for just a second and consider these two thoughts. Consider these two streams of thoughts and consider them like foundations of how you come to the book of Revelation. How many of you, so, so we've already kind of explored a little bit of these two, and we'll spend the next two weeks talking specifically about them, so you, your mind might change for now. But how many of you would be the end historian, if you had to vote, and let's just say you have to because you have to uh, as, a, as a fun little game. You can't stand in the middle. You can't not vote. You had to choose one or the other, and you could change your mind later, but at this point, Right now, right here in the Mill Sunday School, if you had to either pick the contemporary historical or end historical, if you had to side either with N.T. Wright or with the Left Behind series, how many of you would be contemporary historical? Raise your hands, nice and high, look around, okay? How many of you would be end historical? A lot more hands. How many of you didn't vote? Be honest. <laughs> so most of you, assuming from the group of hands, it seemed like maybe two to one, at least, that it was more end historical. So that's the model of interpreting the book of Revelation that most of you have. Maybe it's your influence of the Left Behind series. Maybe it's your influence of the dispensationalism. Maybe it's your influence of just how you pick up the book of Revelation. Someone told you, oh, it's about the end and these events that are to come. And so you pick up the book of Revelation, you start reading, and things fall into the slots. Sweet. And then some of you look like a quarter of this room or a little bit less probably were contemporary historical. Someone told you, you need to interpret the book of Revelation through the eyes of those living in the first century, through that genre, through the author audience of the first century. And so when you pick up the book of Revelation, you think like, oh, what could the mark of the beast be? Uh, And you would say, well, we need to go back and look at the events of the first century and look at, well, maybe the mark of the beast or who the beast could be, could be maybe Roman Empire, or the Senate of Rome, or maybe the, the Antichrist, this beast character, could be the Emperor of Rome, maybe Nero, and you would say things like that. And others of you, if you're in the end historical model, you pick up the book of Revelation, you're like, oh, this is about the end. Therefore, the mark of the beast and the Antichrist, whatever those things are, well, they have to be today. And so maybe the mark of the beast is... We joked last time about the microchips and the dogs. We joked about, uh, or maybe some of you, it's not funny at all. Uh, it wasn't a joke at all. It's like, no, that's what, the, that's what the mark of the beast is. Um, some of you have probably thought along the lines that maybe the UPC code on the back of all the products you buy is the mark of the beast, and you can't buy or sell without the UPC code. Is that what it's called, UPC? What, is that, what in the world does that stand for? Anybody? Stop telling you it's the mark of the beast. It stands for 666. Um, anyways, it was, I remember, this is totally a rabbit trail now, but I remember someone was like, if you calculate the number at the bottom of the UPC code, it's always adds to 666. I was like, are you serious? And so I like added the numbers and it's like, bro, it adds up to 142. And he's like, yeah, but that plus another number would be six. It's like, wait a minute here. Anyways, uh, So it's like going back, in some ways, going back to the drawing board, going back to the foundation of how you interpret the book of Revelation. And so if we're going to go back to a foundation, a building block, literally, um, let's look at some blocks here. I I brought in some blocks. Uh, These are J-Boy's blocks, my son's blocks. 
Um, when I was playing with these and like coming up with this illustration, thinking about it in my head and playing with these blocks, he was crying and screaming because they're his blocks. And he's like, Dad, share, Dad, share. It's like, <laughs> so anyways, um, <clears throat> there's a yellow block and a green block. The green block represents uh, contemporary historical. The yellow block represents the end historical model. And so when we start building upon these blocks, we have to go back to this idea that they're still both open-handed issues. And we, that's like day one stuff with the, with the book of Revelation and how we interpret it. And so I have some, some more blocks to build on these blocks. So this yellow block represents the end historical model. So, so you have all these things that are representative of the end historical model. And maybe it's like, oh, you're arguing about like, oh, well, maybe the rapture happens first and then the tribulation. Or maybe the tribulation and then the rapture happens. No, 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 it's, it's mid. They happen at the same time. Um, it's like, is it the rapture first, then the tribulation? Or is the tribulation first, then the rapture? And you're arguing about things way up here when the foundation of this thing, it's like all it takes is a little... And the whole thing falls over. And so I think sometimes as Christians, we're like, well, is it this or this or this or this? And it's like, do you realize that the whole thing could come tumbling down? And then here's another, uh, if I could even get this on. So here, the green block represents the the contemporary historical model. And so it's like people are arguing about, let's see if I could even pull this off. Oh, it's very unstable. So you're arguing about, what's this represent? Well, this is the mark of the beast, and it's probably Nero. And he's like, no, it's not. It has to be the Senate of Rome. We have to go back to the early interpretations of what um, the early church would have said. And so if you read, like, about the beast, it says, uh, let's see, Revelation 13 says, "Then, uh, Then I stood at the sand of the sea, and the beast rising out from the sea, having seven heads, ten horns, and his horns had crowns, and his heads had blasphemous names on it pretty dirty. Um, Now the beast which I saw was like a leopard, and his feet were like the feet of the bear, and his mouth was like the mouth of a lion. And so a a contemporary historical would say, well, what were some of the events going on in the first century? What What were a leopard and a bear and a lion? Were those political symbols? Like if someone was writing today, they might use things like, oh, his head was like the head of a donkey, and his body was like the body of a elephant. What do those things represent? Well, if you know anything about our political parties, the donkey is representative of the Democrats, the elephant's representative of the... So if someone was talking figuratively and hyper, hyperbolically, hyperbole-ishly, anyways, <laughs> allegorically, they might say well, like, oh, this person has the head of a Democrat and the body, what they do is like a Republican, but how they think is like a Democrat. And so you would go back in history to say, was there any like historical ideas of what the, how would the first century have thought about the leopard and the bear and the lion? Were those political symbols? And so you're arguing about these things up here and you're like, it could be this, it could be that. But we all have to remember that like this goes back, look what it's standing on. I mean, here we are fiddling around with like, you know, what's this, what's that? And it's like, it's sitting on something that just takes a little breath and it falls over and it breaks. It's kind of like uh, the unfortunate picture like this, like when a mudslide happens and the foundation of a house is totally gone and let's just say you're on the roof like fiddling around with like the chimney, like, oh, should I repaint the chimney? Should I, uh, I'm looking at some ceramic chimneys instead of the metal chimneys and, oh, maybe I'm going to do a concrete chimney because that's going to last longer. What? 
stop. The, the foundation of your entire house has just like collapsed and fallen away. And you're up on the roof picking out colors of your chimney. That's silly. Um, and so I think us as Christians, when we look at the end times, there's, we just have to realize that a lot of it is built upon guesses. And maybe they're really good guesses. Maybe they're interpretations of really good interpretations and guesses. But still, at the end of the day, it's on a foundation that is an open-handed issue. And so as we continue this series next week and the week after, I think it's just important for us to, to take a step back and say, we can argue about these things. We could disagree about these things. But maybe our whole interpretation of the book of Revelation is, is seated upon a foundation that's maybe loose. Maybe it's like, you know, here you are way up here arguing about who the Antichrist is, whether it's the Pope or the President. And they're like, oh, it's this or that. Like, well, the whole interpretation, you have to realize that there's a whole other foundational way to interpret the book of Revelation. And, and so that's where we're kind of going from here. So let's whew, clear our minds a little bit. Is anybody else like a little confused about all this stuff? Yeah, yeah, me too. So I want to end with this conclusionary remark and just kind of say, I'm going to read a text of Scripture. And whatever your interpretation of Scripture is, um, here's a kind of a close-handed issue. And I say kind of a close-handed issue. As Christians, I, say, I would say it's very close-handed. And it's this idea, this big idea that God is in control. And this is the idea that we started off with, that, that we're not just talking about the end as if like this end of the world is accidentally going to happen someday or Jesus' return is going to accidentally happen someday. No, God is in control. And the, the ends and the events like that are foretold, like God is in control of them. And he's in control when the black forest is on fire. He's in control when there's floods. He's in control when people lose their life or they lose their house. God is still in control. And these events, this goal that's going to happen will come about in a, in a beautiful maybe beautifully horrible way, but God is in control. And we know that he's coming back and his return is good. And so I wanted to read um, the end of the book of Revelation, Revelation 22, just these couple of verses here, uh, Revelation 22, one through four, which talk about like the end and this image that like even after all is destroyed, this happens. The angel showed me the river of the water of life. As clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and the lamb, Uh, Down the middle of the great street of the city, on each of the sides of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding fruit every month. And the leaves of the trees are for the healing of the nations. And no longer is there any curse. The throne of God and the Lamb will be in the city, and the servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will no longer be any night. They will not need the light of the lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and he will reign forever and ever. Let's pray as we consider that. God, we thank you that you are in control. We thank you that as the Mill Sunday School continues this theme of the end and studying the events of the end, that God, you will provide clarity where there's there's need for clarity. You will provide comfort where there's need for comfort. You will remind us of your sovereign who you are and that you are God, you are in control, you're totally sovereign over all things. So God, we worship you, we praise you as, as some of the events that we think about in the end, in the times 
God, you are in control. We, we tell us, you tell us that. You remind us of those things that you are in control ultimately. We praise you. We worship you in your holy name. And everybody said, amen. Thank you for listening to the Mill Sunday School podcast. You can find more information at www.themillonline.org.